Okay, it's been a while since I made an episode, and in particular, it's been a while since I've made an episode like this, which is just um, a, a monologue. But um, I had a lot of ideas um, going through my mind this morning about what you might call synecdoche and fractality um, and the, the image of God. Um, I want to start by talking about a painting by William Blake. The painting is called God Judging Adam. Um, if you search God Judging Adam by William Blake, it should come right up. It is God um, in his form as, as the Ancient of Days sitting on a chariot of fire. This is sort of an older, um, you know, Hebrew uh, depiction of God. Um, and then looking himself like a young ancient, we have Adam standing across from God. And the, um, the, the writer, Nathan Smith, he's just a blogger writer from Texas. Um, he commented on this image that that Adam is God having displaced himself from himself. In other words, capital H. Adam is God in the mode of what? <laughs> Not God. Because, um, you know, if, if there was like, let's say, a totally infinite being, it would also be finite kind of, kind of idea. I mean, there's more to it than that. If you're familiar with my thoughts, you'll see that I conceive a fairly robust sense in which um, God is, is a defined consciousness, at least, um, as the second person of the Trinity. And that consciousness does relate to you as to an other, although, although, you know, that's, that's not, that's not anything as simple as like, say a self and other separated by some spatial distance in a larger containing medium that has ontological primacy over both of them. Selfhood and otherness are somehow features of relationality itself, and that also presuppose, you know, some kind of underlying medium of sameness or identity. See Christopher Langen, see, I suppose, uh, uh, Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Um, but this idea, this intuition, um, that every, say, difference is a difference in sameness is is, um, I imagine, so true that, that it's been hit upon by a number of different thinkers. I mean, my favorite um, philosopher for these kinds of topics is, is, is Chris Langan. So, okay, so the point is, when we're looking at this painting, God Judging Adam, it's clear that, you know, you, I mean, the standard way to formulate it is, is, that, is that Adam is, is in the image of God. What does that mean about God and his sort of most original or ultimate mode of being? It means that in some sense, he's like Adam. Um, if you turn to um, 2 Corinthians 3.18, let me find that verse. Let's just start reading from 3.12. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. 
For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains uplifted, because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Okay, so you know that's a verse that my friend Wayne is fond of commenting on. And the way he reads that verse is um, that Christ is the image of God in us. When we look into a mirror, as it were, at our true self, we see Christ. And, and what I find interesting about God judging Adam is, is that when God looks at his creature, he sees himself. And then indeed, you know, God experiences everything that his creatures experience, and, and he experiences himself through his creatures. So the, the point being uh, with um, 2 Corinthians 3.18 is that the mirroring is in some sense two-way. Um, so that 2 Corinthians 3.18 becomes a sort of, if you will, divine drosta effect. The drosta effect being whenever you put two mirrors directly across from each other and they reflect each other in a sort of infinite telescoping or, or, or two-way infinite regress. Um, in other words, Christ is God knowing us, knowing God, knowing us, knowing God, knowing us, knowing God, something like that, on and on. This dynamic is, is the most fundamental dynamic, and it's what creates reality. It um, also reminds me of um, something that David Bentley Hart said in You Are Gods. I always wish I could just find the original uh, statements. Um rather than having to paraphrase them, but... All right, here it is. I dug it up. Um, the sole sufficient natural end of all spiritual creatures is the supernatural, and grace is nothing but the necessary liberation of all creatures for their natural ends. Um, sorry, these are, these are four sort of tenets or propositions that he holds as, as central. Uh, to his argument, and, and you are gods. Um, somewhere in here is the quotation that I want. Number two, nature stands in relation to supernature as, in Aristotelian terms, prime matter to form. Nature in itself has no real existence and can have none. It is entirely an ontological patiency before the formal causality of supernature, and only as grace can nature possess any actuality at all. Um, three, no spiritual creature could fail to achieve its naturally supernatural end unless God himself were the direct moral cause of evil in that creature, which is impossible. Conversely, God saves creatures by removing extrinsic physical, that is, non-moral impediments to their natural union with him. Four, God became human so that humans should become God. Only the God who is always already human can become human. Only a humanity that is always already divine can become God. Okay, so that is obviously relevant um, to the, 
the sort of dynamic we have in God judging Adam and in Second uh, Corinthians three eighteen. Um, there's there's a lot more to say on it though. Maybe just for further um, inspiration is the wrong word, but for for more grist um, um, for this mill, I, I think I'm going to look through some of my notes and just read some of those. We're trying to answer the question of what it might mean for for God to have always already been human. Yeah, um, you know, in Him we live and move and have our being. Mm, suggests that okay, plausibly there could be something um, always already divine about us, at least potentially. But we, you know, what is a statement like God um, uh, was always already human supposed to mean? Even though you know, Hart's not alone in making a statement like that. I think I recall John Milbank saying something similar. Um, in his very, um, very um, uh, uh, striking and profound um, appearance on um, Grace Saves All with David Artman, um, he says something to the effect that unless God was always already uh, human, or, um, he, he could not have become incarnate, something to that effect. Okay, so in these notes, I, I kind of try to make as much sense of this idea as I personally can. Um, I'm just going to read them. Um, they're not always the clearest, um, but I'm, I'm just going to read it. Christology. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. What Christ is originally is the finite aspect of God, the mind of the cosmos or real universe. And then in, in a lot of my older... Mm, well, even including fairly recent uh, episodes and discussions, I, I do expand on that quite a bit. Um, then the Logos assumes a human form to demonstrate the hollow fractal relationship between God and creature. Something about what I was talking about earlier. Something like what I was talking about earlier. But the Logos was at least always capable of this Yahweh Katan style inmapping. Um, and then in parentheses, I wrote angel of the Lord. So gosh, what do I mean by that? So like, um, well, it's like on one level, it's like you have like, you have the unmanifest God and the manifest God. And that's something like the father or what, what Langham would call UBT. And then you have the manifest God, which is like the cosmic Christ. And then fractally, you have like, say the relationship between the cosmic Christ or the, you know, you know, Castrop speaks of, Bernardo Castrop speaks of the mind at large. That's kind of what I mean, except for me, in my conception, the mind at large is more self-aware than we are, not less. Um, for Castrop, the mind at large seems only to be sort of dimly or inchoately self-aware. I think that's a mistake. Um, um, the You have the relationship, say, between the, the cosmic Christ, the, the, mind, the mind at large, and that's that's everywhere, you know. Um, that's everywhere around you. Um, Richard War, something of a heretic, <laughs> but then again, you know, um, uh, kettles and black black teapots or whatever. But um, you know, he says Christ is another word for everything. That's sort of the sense in which I'm. That's sort of the sense I'm talking about. And then it's like you know, God is everywhere, 
And then, you know, God can also assume a localized form because he is God. So that's like the sort of Yahweh Katan, you know, in the, the Hecalot mysticism. Um, different people like Rabbi Akiva and Elijah Ben Abuya were engaged in the meditative practice of descending, quote unquote, but really that might be some kind of code word for ascending. Just like in Job, he says, he says his wife says, you know, why don't you just bless God and die? <laughs> really, she didn't mean bless, probably she meant curse, but um, uh, so, you know, Rabbi Akiva and Elijah ben Abuya, they, they, they descend into the Hecalot or palaces, like these kinds of mind palaces, these kind of structures whose features have been sort of, um, extracted, you know, by the collective unconsciousness or collective consciousness, if you like, of, of like lots of meditators who have been trying to like investigate these same structures, um, um, they, they go in and, 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 um, Elijah Ben Abuya is, su is surprised to find someone sitting in the, in the, in the throne room of God, you know, where there's not supposed to be anyone with a visible form there. And that's, um, the, the, the Metatron or the Metatron. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it sort of gives rise to this heretical two powers theology. Um, uh, but, you know, that's, that's later condemned by, by, by the Talmud. But, um, all I'm talking about really is just the idea of that, you know, God is everywhere. And so it, God in that sense can't be incarnate, but you know, God is God. And so he also can assume a localized form sort of like, you know, in Bruce Almighty, when, when, you know, Morgan Freeman is talking to Jim Carrey, we understand the sense in which he's God. He's God in the sense of someone uh, who is, you know, bringing uh, God's God's words, um, it, who is speaking God's words directly to us and who is like something like God's video game character, like a, a direct expression of his will just translated into another medium kind of thing. I mean, the Bible certainly has a notion of this, you know, for ex example, is Isaac, is it Isaac? But is Isaac wrestling with God? It's Jacob, Jacob Israel, right? Yeah, is Jacob wrestling with God or is he wrestling with the angel of God? It's It kind of goes back and forth. But the point is, the angel of the Lord is God as much as any, um, you know, sort of localized, like, in-mapping, we might say, um, or appearance, you know, can be God. Um and that's like, there's like the greater Yahweh, it's like, um, Yahweh, I want to say Yahweh Gadol, is that what it is? And then Yahweh Katan, it's like the little Yahweh, that's the angel of the Lord. That's, that's the concept here. Okay, um, and then I have a parenthetical, I said, uh, that God should appear in human form is only appropriate given ultimate reality's emphasis on symbolism uh, and communication. Okay, that's a little cryptic. Um, so upshot equals sometimes it refers to the Logos Father dynamic and sometimes to the Angel Logos dynamic, or perhaps more, or or perhaps to the the Angel of the Lord Godhead dynamic. Okay, that's not it's not terribly clear, but let's just keep going down here. Perhaps we can come as close to union with God as has the human nature of Christ. 
that's that's a potentially heretical idea. I think I sort of reject it later. Um, at its panpsychic level of delineation. Um, okay, that is that's too much. Um, it's too much to explain. Although I do sort of explain it in shorthand form down there, the inspired neuron analogy. I'm not going to touch it. I'm going to move on. Um, you can distinguish between the human and divine natures of Christ conceptually, but not functionally. It doesn't make sense. The upshot is the man Jesus of Nazareth in hypostatic union with the divine nature will speak to you and lead you into the same relationship with God that the human nature of Jesus Christ has with the divine nature in a non-technical sense. What Christ is, is God knowing us, knowing God knowing us, etc., etc., that's still not quite what I want. Let me see. Jesus of Nazareth as man is not God. Okay. That is the human nature is not the divine nature, but the human nature is hypostatically united to the divine nature. And um, the analogy I suggested for that before was, interestingly, the analogy, um, an analogy to the left and right hemispheres of the mind. When they're informationally disconnected, the effect is two different persons. When they're integrated, the effect is like one unified consciousness, and yet um, we can at least conceptually distinguish between, say, the, the, the nature of the left hemisphere and the nature of the right. Um, within that integration, even though functionally it's one consciousness now. Um, um, so anyway, it's that that was the analogy I suggested earlier for understanding the hypostatic union. But the whole business of like uh, levels of panpsychic delineation was like, it's like, okay, so, so the, the man Jesus is, is, is informationally integrated with like the mind at large, the, the cosmic Christ, um, uh, and yet, you know, there's something that it's like to be the man Jesus, just as there's something that it's like to be on panpsychism, my finger, despite my finger being part of a much larger, like, informational um, integration. And um, that's sort of what I was talking about with the weird, weird phrase, the inspired neuron, because... I explained, there is a neuron in your brain which is well connected to every other neuron that your waking consciousness encompasses. Per panpsychism, it would seem that there is an experience corresponding to this one neuron alone, and yet whatever that experience is, it is not the experience of a neuron which is functionally cut off from all the others, but rather is an experience of the opposite. Um, just as the experience of being oneself is not the experience of one cut off from the rest of humankind. The system, humankind, in its current level of integration, does just whatever it presently does. When it is further integrated, it will do different things. Okay, that's like unhelpfully vague. But what I'm talking about is simply that on panpsychism, one assumes there is something that it is like to be, you know, just, you know, name any particular neuron in your brain, there's an experience of what it's like to be just that one neuron alone. And yet that experience is not an experience of, um, you know, that, that neuron functionally isolated from everything else, that, that, that neuron not communicating with everything else. Um, the neuron is sending and receiving the messages that it, that it 
that it does, um, you know, in communion with every other neuron. Um, and yet its experience is not the experience of the whole. So I, I don't, I, I, unfortunately, I don't seem to be capable of making it any clearer than that right now. Um, I, I don't know if I see, I'm, I'm waiting for it to come up in my notes, but the point I made later, I'm just not finding it. The point I made later on is that, um, I am not sure that we can, we can actually have the same level of oneness with God as Jesus has. And the reason for that is something like God has given each of us free will and he is, and he has left that sort of, um, inviolate and sacrosanct. And indeed, there is something about our freedom and spontaneity that I think is essential to, to, to who and what God is and to his providence or plans, his, as Langan would put it, to his ability to, to, you know, self-configure uh, with, um, you know, maximum, like, I don't know, flexibility, um, utility, as Langan is always talking about maximizing generalized utility. Um, but I mean, there's something to that. Um, you know, it's kind of like, kind of think of like a flock of birds or a school of fish, the way that they move as one and disharmony is kind of, um, uh, it is, it is, it is evil it is the absence of harmony. Um, you know, some, something like that notion. But, you know, theoretically, the idea with Jesus is that this is, this is um, uh, a human being whose human nature is owned and controlled and, and, and interpenetrated, to borrow language from our Oliver Crisp, by the divine nature. So it's almost as if there is no, what? That human nature does not have the will to act apart, to act as it would outside of some relationship of, uh, you know, deep inter informational integration with, with like, uh, you know, the mind of the cosmos, the mind at large, the cosmic Christ. And so we, we can have oneness with that too, a oneness of intention and purpose. Um, but, um, I don't think it can actually be the same degree of oneness. It, it, it would be achieved, like for Christ, like that, that oneness is, you might say second nature. Um, <laughs> um, it's always there. And for us, it's, 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 you know, then again, it's like, you know, I was going to say for us, it's only in the moments of like, uh, self-abandonment, death on the cross, surrender to God that we achieve that oneness. But then it's, you know, in Hebrews, it says Christ was perfected by his suffering. Um, and um, so, you know, I'm almost, I'm not sure that that, that qualifier uh, would result in some real point of difference between ourselves and Christ. Um, but anyway, just, just as I conceive it, you know, I, I, I sort of see that, that um, we, we always have a freedom um, to, to act apart from the mind of, say, you know, uh, the cosmos as a whole. Because if, if the cosmos were like directly controlling each one of its neurons, that, that would result in something that's actually not even logically possible. It's kind of like imagining 
Like, what if the executive intelligence of your mind or your brain were, were directly um, moving and programming each one of the neurons which that executive intelligence itself emerges from? There is a two-way dynamic, kind of like, think of like a torus. There's top down and bottom up. They're both there, but it's like... Um, you you can't you can't have like the top down executive consciousness um, sort of be its own conscious um, driver. That would imply some kind of like infinite um, regress, an actual infinity of sort of self direction or self movement. Um, it's just not it's not logically possible. Uh, you know, not as far as I can make out. So, but at the same time, there's nothing barring, barring it from, from doing so in the case of one neuron. And that's what I'm proposing, in, you know, in the, in the case of Christ, and that he's done so as a kind of localized in-mapping, a Yahweh Katan, to speak to us and whatever other purposes um, uh, he may have. You know, I don't think I, I don't, I don't know if I did an episode yet talking about how, um, you know, like I don't claim to know of the reasons why the incarnation took place. I don't claim to have some theological logic or calculus whereby the, the incarnation and the atonement are necessitated. I'm just not all, I'm just also not convinced by the you know, arguments that you know, the incarnation is a priori impossible. Um, but, but no, I don't, I don't understand the full meaning um, uh, or, or mystery of, of the, the incarnation. Um, let me see. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, here, anyway, I'll just keep reading my notes. Um, why wouldn't God do this in the case of every human, that is to say, incarnate or own and control that human nature? Be perhaps because it would destroy his ability to creatively self-identify, indeed break logic on some level, and also his doing so in the case of Jesus is what gives Jesus the that angel of the Lord type status. In other words, you can't listen to everything some regular guy says and take it as coming from the mouth of God. So I'm kind of communicating in my typically kind of like weird and indirect and contrapositive way because <clears throat> I'm writing to myself. And you might say like, hey, why don't you read the stuff that was written for public consum consumption? And I would, but there is none because I don't really know how to explain myself to other people. Um, in writing, I do it a little bit better when I'm talking. Pre-existence of Christ. Many theologians would read that in other language, such as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world as referring toward to an, an original pre-temporal intention toward incarnation. From the perspective of the quote-unquote less terminal domain, and like, what the heck do I mean by that? Um, that would be a whole other thing. But... Uh, you would say it's from the perspective of the other side or heaven or, or eternity. But the point is like, how to put it? I don't consider that to be a realm that is absolutely devoid of change. Um, I don't consider it a place of like static eventlessness. I consider the timelessness of eternity, if you like, to be really not different from the timelessness of the present moment fully attended to. And I think our sense of linear time, that is, um, our 
our experience of recollecting the past in pieces and not all at once. Um, um, it, it, that is, the, you know, that experience is a function of um, imperfect attention, uh, shall we say, to, to the present moment. Um, but I think like something like the timelessness of eternity can be experienced now, you know, by just attending to the present moment as you truly experience it. Um, you know, that's my intuition. Okay. Um, and I still haven't even explained what it means, the less terminal domain, because, <laughs> because Langan calls it the non-terminal domain. Um, the point be, suggesting that it's like not specified or that it's completely devoid of like the phenomenon of like processes ending or something, which, you know, taken to the limit would suggest, you know, like that change doesn't happen there. And I, you know, I just don't buy that. Um, I think, you know, like your experience is composed of known points. It's always maximally specified. Um, any, in, any lack of specification would be a neither nor, it would be a contradiction. And that it's like, was not specified. You just don't see that. It's a kind of agnosia, you know, just like people with a, let's say a, a CVA, um, a stroke, they will not see what, what they're, what they're no longer aware of. They're not, it's not like they see blackness. They're just, they don't even see, they don't even see a darkness. Um, they're not aware of what they're not aware of. And it would be the same for whatever in your consciousness was not a specified or known value. Um, I suspect, but you know, anyway, less terminal domain. <laughs> I, I don't I don't conceive of, of the experience of the other side as being too radically or dualistically different from our experience here. That, that that's just the, the short way of putting it. Um, uh, da, 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 da. from the perspective of the less terminal domain, <laughs> Christ's life, death, and resurrection have already have not yet and always are occurring. From within space-time, though, perhaps Jesus can sensibly construe and represent his final ascent to heaven as a return to where he always already was, you know, from the perspective of the other side. I'm not sure, <laughs> but this does not exclude some understanding of the Metatron in heaven as being the same lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. The Metatron, the visible human form of God, is always eternally wounded for our transgressions. Jesus is the form of God in the human collective consciousness and the age-slash-world that it creates. But is that what God somehow ultimately is, a human form? I don't see any meaningful sense in which this could be. It seems to me, God in his most ultimate form is Christ in the sense of God knowing us, knowing him, knowing us, knowing him, and that relationship extends to any and all creatures. Any creature of God is having dis any creature of God is God having displaced himself from himself. Or as maybe David Bentley Hart would put it in You Are Gods, it's like God in the mode of not God. <laughs> um, um, but there's, there's still there's more to it than that. I mean, with the sense in which I mean it here is just the sense in which, you know, on my sort of panpsychic muriology or part whole uh, conception of things. Um, um, God experiences everything that we experience. Um, 
but in a different way, uh, in, a, in a way that is integrated with the experience of every other creature, whereas we just experience what we experience. So God, in a sense, experiences a translation of what we experience. Um, uh, but, the, goodness, it's too much to explain. I won't try. The, you know, the distinction between use and mention comes to mind. Um, signifier and, and signified, but that's, actually, I, I shouldn't even have said that because I don't have the, the will to try and make myself intelligible on that point. Okay. When we show Adam being fashioned by a human-shaped God, which in the limit would seem to be, it seem to be Jesus of Nazareth. Um... Yeah. Um, in other words, like if you're talking any any localized human like, you know, in mapping of God, um, like in the limit, what that image is, is Jesus, the one who the one who. Uh, who took our sins upon himself and suffered, say, the worst possible fate as the price of of, you know, allowing the cosmos to come into existence. Um, uh, when we, when we show Adam being fashioned by a human shaped God and say that humankind was created in the image of God, the broader metaphorical point perhaps refers to what students of Chris Langan's CTMU call the identity or the essential hollow fractal image M which in whatever specific instantiation also represents a certain informational replica of the universe, as it were, viewed from a certain angle. Okay, what the heck do I mean by that? Um, I'm talking about, like, say, if the universe is a hologram, the mind of God is a hologram, each one of its parts is in the informational image of the whole, um, that image is one that has to be, like, self-true on every level of scale. It's, like, fractal kind of phenomenon. Um, and what that image is for Langan is, is syndifionesis, if I'm not mistaken. It's just the idea of difference in sameness. And so any difference is a difference in an underlying sameness. And, you know, if you're going to get a little, a little Hegelian about it, then it's like any identity. If you, if you, if you then train the light of consciousness on the, uh, the identity underlying some difference relation, that identity you know, to be understood as identity has to be understood in distinction to difference, you know, thereby presupposing some deeper kind of, you know, um, identity, but newer and sort of undiscovered as yet identity, you know, between or underneath identity and difference, you know, hence, I imagine, you know, that's where, where Hegel sort of got that, that phrase or formula, the identity of identity and difference. And, you know, that's what it is. That's that image M, I would say. And for me, I suspect, the image of God, to be real and to be conscious on some level and to be, uh, yeah, to be real, to be in existence, to be conscious, um, um, and to be in the image of God, to be a sort of holographic, um, uh, you know, informational replica um, of the universe, but, you know, from a certain angle, like that's what, that's what it means to be, it, these, these are all the same. These mean the same thing. That's, that's what it means to be in the image of God to me. Um, 
and uh, or that's what I suspect it means. Um, and obviously, there's there's a whole lot more here um, to do with to do with love and to do with um, you know, it's like love is the revelator. My friend Luke Thompson likes to say that unless you love, you do not see. And conversely, it's like Jesus, he sees everything because because he's seeing from the perspective of love. It's like he knows everything about you. And when you look at someone from that perspective of love, it's like they are the center of the universe. In God's love, they are the center and they are the apple of, if you like, the universe's eye or God's eye. You know, God, I'm here equating God with the universe where universe is understood as everything real and not merely everything physical. So it's like the real universe contains everything real, including itself, like the set of all sets itself containing kind of thing. This is a very Langanian idea. But it's like apple of the eye is literally it means it means pupil. And it is in some sense like the center of that self-seeing eye. Um you know the one is, as it were, the center of that self-seeing eye when one is, um, uh, when when finds oneself, when one finds oneself um, in, in that gaze of divine love that reveals everything. Um, and that sort of makes you the center of the universe. Um, um, this is, this is, this, this definitely comes to my mind when I think of, holography or hology, what Langan calls hology. The center is not at some fixed or absolute point. The center is the center is everywhere. The center is anywhere you care to look. That would be one way of putting it. And yeah, I I, I get I guess all this stuff kind of sounds what you would say. What what, what would you say? Um, Non-dualistic. But you know, every every um, thinker with an ounce of discernment here's a phrase like non-dualism and immediately understands that it implies dualism. So there's, you know, something more going on here, right? Just like McGilchrist said, Ian McGilchrist said, well, something that I said, <laughs> the exact same thing almost, um, uh, almost word for word, which is like, we need both either or and both and. Um, and it, another way to put it is without difference, you don't have oneness. Um, and so there is tremendous oneness in with this in this love, as almost the discovery of a shared identity among God's self and you know God and God's self and God's God's creatures and each you know, each each creature discovers a, a, a shared identity among you know shared among all the other creatures. Um, it's like I am you and you are me and um, and so on and even you might say I am God and you are God in a sense. But but the point to remember would be would be that without 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 the differences there wouldn't be sameness um let me find my let me find my note to the uh let me find my note on this but it's just something that i said to the effect that um the new age or gnosticism they're always seeking to collapse the limit and divide by zero such that we end up with like a kind of unintelligible emptiness you know, a, a flat unity without, um, you know, without any ordering multiplicity. It's, it's not tri, it's not triune anymore. It's just, it's just unitary in a way that is static and 
um, without any kind of internal dynamism. The note that I was looking for was, was talking about how, man, I need, I need to just find it. Oh, look at this little gem. Reality's glory is in its concrete vividness. Terminalization is the glory of God. Who has ever felt the wind, you know, on, on the hairs of one's arm? And, like, our moments of greatest, greatest happiness have been also, like, the most, like, concrete and embodied moments. And, you know, those who, who have their near-death experiences and go on to the other side describe it as more vivid and more real. Hence, another reason why I, I, I say that the, the, the non-terminal domain is misnamed. It's, it's very terminal. In some sense, it's even more terminal. But that is a debate that will not matter to most of my listeners. Um, that's just a debate, I guess, that I have with other students of the CTMU or aficionados thereof. I don't know what you would call me. Um, but, you know, there's other, you know, like Bernard... Um, well, I don't, I don't know if he shares his full name on his, on his channel, but his, his channel is Mathematical Met Metaphysics. Um, um, he's, a, he's a super smart guy. Find him on YouTube. He's, he's putting forward a theology very different than mine. Um, and and uh, listeners of this podcast with long memories will remember that I did a whole little series attempting to debunk the law of one, which I think is still bunk. Um, so I'm not a fan of that, but you know, he sort of pulls that off the shelf and use that, uses that as the, the, the theological model in which, in which to interpret the statements of the CTMU. Although perhaps I'm getting, you know, um, you know, that, that dynamic, um, uh, turned around the wrong way. You know, perhaps one one uses the CTMU as the theological as as the model in which to interpret you know theological statements coming from you know theologies that are uh, spiritual languages, you know, at at higher levels of like generalization or abstraction, lower levels of resolution. Um, and and so like the CTMU gives gives you a model to interpret statements and make things clearer and more fine grained. At least it did for me, but then the question is still like, who's who's theological? You know, whose theology are you? Are you um, plugging into the CTMU? And and for me, I I just sort of used Orthodox Christianity, um, or at least as Orthodox as you know I can make it, as Orthodox as I can understand it. Um, and uh, you know, he uses the Law of One, uh, sort of new age um, uh, theology or spirituality. So, you know, the whole like non-terminal, less terminal, like, uh, or, you know, uh, that, that, that debate, um, it would be more like a debate between, you know, him and me. For most people, again, it's not really going to mean anything. But anyway, that's, that's why that sort of language is there in my notes. Oh, I like this one. It's like, Jesus is God, knowing us, knowing God, uh, knowing us, etc. I seem to say that a lot. Um, conspansive metacycles or what have you. That's, that's CTMU jargon. The process. Jesus is a dance, a relationship, as indeed 
as it as is indeed any person. Yeah, you know, it's like a person is like like relationality on some level. It can't be understood in isolation from other persons. Um, uh, there is no more ultimate mode of being God can have than this. For example, you know, as an Ur-man in some Platonic sky, or, you know, like the Adam Kadmon of, of, uh, of uh, Kabbalism, um, or as a universe, which, you know, a spatio-temporal universe, which is yet somehow distinct from and reposed within a larger con containing space or absolute backdrop. These are all ways of understanding, um, you know, God, like in sort of his original mode of being, if you like, that are, that are improper, you know, to, to, to what, to who and what God actually is. Um, and so, you know, but when I say that, like, what, God in his most ultimate mode of being is Christ, i.e., you know, God knowing us, knowing God knowing us, I don't mean that, I, I, there's a sense in which I only mean that in, like, an abstract sense. Um, because I, I'm not saying, in other words, I'm not saying Jesus Christ is merely that, that idea or dynamic. Uh, again, as I said earlier, it, uh, for me, it's like Jesus is, is, or Jesus Christ is the man Jesus hypostatically united um, to the to the divine nature or the logos a sarcos, um, and and Jesus Christ you know helps us uh, you know become like him. Um, he he enters into relationship with us and helps us you know to 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 stand in a similar relation you know to to God as 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 he does. Um, I found, I think, the note that I was looking for, but it's like, it's still so compressed and vague as to be of almost no use, but, um, um, it, it, it's talking about the tension or the relationship between the finite and the infinite. And earlier somewhere else, I, I talked about how the point of the Holy Spirit is that the finite and the infinite are related and whatever relates them is also infinite. Um, that, but without that tension, i.e. difference, you know, um, uh, between, you know, the finite and the infinite, you cannot have, you can't have any of this dynamism. You can't have any of this, the, the oneness of, of, you know, um, humanity becoming God and God becoming human, um, it, it it all presupposes and rests on difference. So I guess I'm trying to make the point that I'm not I'm not asserting some direct equivalence. We're saying that oneness is the same thing as you know some identity of indiscernibles. I remain different from you, and you from me, and you from God, uh, and God from us, and um, um, difference is not merely an illusion. But it's also not the end of the story, um, if I can put it like that. And maybe I'll leave it there. Um, hopefully this episode was instructive or helpful in some tiny measure to um, uh, uh, other people than, than just me. Um, but um, thank you for listening. Um, and I hope to get some like good conversations out with people soon. Until next time, thank you.